Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. Uh, this is part two of two. So last week we began the chat with Adrian Isatribi and Rebecca Hosking and we were talking about sustainability and ethical practices in farming and in food and about how a producer sources and all sorts of different things. And we can carry on in a similar vein this week. Um, and as I said at the start uh, of last week's podcast, this was a very long and rambling conversation, which is exactly the sort of thing I enjoy. But it did mean that I didn't want to edit out all the good stuff. So we've been left with two episodes. And hopefully I'll be doing more of this style of stuff where I'm speaking to more than one person at a time. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I think the feedback's been quite good. I've certainly enjoyed listening back to it. Um, but anyway, I'll stop rambling on and we'll carry on the conversation with Adrian Isatribi and Rebecca Hosking. The thing that I tend to get on my soapbox and start talking to people about is, is understanding how much work and effort goes into putting food on their table. When you want to talk to somebody, and this is like the first thing I will speak to somebody about when they approach me about price, because obviously, you know, I'm standing at a market stall, price is always a factor and it should not not be like, I would never be the, I'm not the kind of person to say that price is irrelevant. You know, we don't live like that. But when they come up and they say, well, why is it expensive? And I say, well, look, if you, if you understand, you know, I mean, you mentioned margin earlier, Sam, you know, if you understand margin, and you really simplify it and you say, okay, I'm asking you, you know, the, the supermarket is asking you to pay, let's say five pounds in money for, 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 for one kilo of meat, arguably. And the way that margin works means the person who supplied that meat is seeing two pound 50. And the person that they got it from, let's say a farmer, because it's never going to be direct usually from the farmer to a supermarket. There always has to be distribution. There's always the middleman as, as Peck said. Okay, so the distributor is getting £2.50, Well, the farmer is getting £1.25, maybe. Maybe there's another person in the middle, so that person's getting £1.25, and the farmer is getting 75p, 75p a kilo. And then I usually ask people to consider their own weight and ask themselves if you know, Sam, you want to tell us how you weigh? How much do you weigh? I don't know, in kilos, about 13 stone. <laughs> oh God, I don't know stone. Do you know what stone is? Oh, no, I'm, I'm literally just got my phone here doing, I'm, I'm, I'll admit, I'm doing... Let's say, what is like an average man? An average man is like 70, 80 kilos, right? And it's 75p, so that's 60 pounds. How, can, you, can you feed yourself well for 60 pounds? Like a year? That's your mm -hmm. entire value, 60 pounds. And, you, and, you, and then you, you have a farmer like Bex who wants to keep the animal for longer, to really invest in it, to make sure that it, 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 it has a strong life that's more than just one year. And I feel like when you start to do that math for people, they understand the exponential growth of how price arrives at their door. Once you start to add all that in, that's where I think people can start to get a grasp of why I'm not only passionate about the beginning of the supply chain and raising those animals well, I'm also really passionate about not wasting it. There's a great saying we have down here in the farming world is you don't need to be religious to say grace about your food. Meaning mm. once you start farming, you realize how there is externality um, that the world throws at you to get that food to the table. It's, it's, it's a miracle it gets there sometimes. And so this, this saying of you don't need to be religious to say grace. I absolutely get that. When, when you actually get your hands in the soil and you start going for it, it, it you know, it's, it's so much work. 
to get it there. And I think another saying, um, one of my friends who's, who's Irish, and she said this to me 20 years ago, and it's a bit of a general sweep, but it is a good line. Um, and she said, see Bex, the, the problem is, is for the vast majority or a, a large portion of my country, we're one generation away from working the land. Whereas with you in England, you're five generations from working the land. And so it isn't just now that people have this broken link with food. It, it's generational. I mean, I feel like I want to sort of say, obviously, culture plays a role as well. And the expectations of the trappings of our lives. I mean, just look at the conversation we're having. We're having it digitally. It means that we mm -hmm. have purchased equipment that allows us to have that conversation. There's a finite amount of things that we can sort of acquire for ourselves. I'm not suggesting to anybody that we go back five generations. And I would never say either that like, that it's all or nothing. It's, yeah. it's not all or nothing. We should not sort of say, well, look, if I can't make all 100% good choices, then I'm going to make none. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about making incremental changes. There is that market there. You know, there is a market for your food if you choose to. We found it, you know, and, and all my friends are finding it. There is a huge surge, and particularly where, dare, dare I mention, COVID <laughs> mm. um, has pushed that and has made, and through the devices we're all looking at, you know, through the computers, people are had this downtime they've been furloughed they've they've lost work perhaps um they've had time to look into things and so they are looking at ironically cheaper ways of getting food and they're realizing that's bulk ways of getting food which is going cutting down through the middlemen and going straight back mm. to the farmers it's interesting we were talking just to put it on a little bit of a tangent but we were talking adrian and i were talking last week about um local foods and and celebrating and we are now obviously talking to you two you know we, we have a culture of food definitely come in particularly in the last 20 years um but we haven't you know we, we we've we've well we've lagged for a long time compared to other european countries and and it it's talking about um regional food and it was a really interesting thing i was it was a few years ago but i was reading about this but it was actually we talk about the connection it's, it's sort of gone full circle because what happened with our regional foods was it was destroyed because of um industrialization it's because of the, the railways and it was actually also because of our class system so the railways opened up our country far faster than say france and germany and italy and these areas where they still have these cultural foods and the, the language around the foods ours got mished up because of the railways it also got mashed up apparently because of staff going to work in all of the grand houses around the country so you would have people from durham with people from somerset from people from wiltshire and people from lancashire and they're all mixing together and the foods that were there were more universally air brackets british rather than regional so we lost a lot of our regional foods because of industrialization and it seems somewhat poignant we're reinventing these foods now when we're using the same sort of system to get it around the country again through that same mechanism that lost it in the place. I mean talking about circles right I mean this is this is interesting because it, it does like circle back a little bit to one of the things that I thought was really exciting about um, village farm um, which was the name I, I'm, is, was it village organic farm or vi just village farm? Village right? farm, right? village farm organics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was the the farm that um, 
that Bex and Tim had and that we discussed earlier. Um, one of the things that I remember getting really excited about, and I don't know how far the project went, so this would be mm -hmm. neat for you to chime in afterwards, but that they were working to sort of resurrect an extinct breed of sheep that was indigenous to Devon, that they were working with different breeds to try and fine tune the specific elements of that sheep and see if they could bring it back as, as such. And that for me was just like, so fabulous in the one hand, because I think that that's what Crown and Q is doing as well, because we're looking at things that used to be. And it's not saying that I lovingly, laboriously recreate them and they're absolutely perfect repetition, you know, they're, you know, down to the last, note perfect facsimiles they're not they're 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 a tune they're the same tune but in a in a different key to talk about those sheep a minute uh, briefly is yeah we i mean the local breeds down here are very heavy weight they get on their backs and can get into real danger with um corvid um so ravens and rooks attacking them if they do oh, oh gosh i'll probably get in real trouble with some of the local breeders but for being a hardy animal to look after itself it isn't fit for purpose it needs a lot mm -hmm. of looking after and obviously looking after uh requires energy and it requires labor and the interesting thing is if you're talking about localities and you're going back to uh, originalities we had all of these original breeds these original breeds they bred them before we got industrialized they bred them for the ecological niches they were in the yes, landscape exactly so, you know so they actually to be to be old is to be new because back then they didn't have the fossil fuels without the fossil fuel the animal had to function without being in a barn without hay being brought to it without being wintered inside without having all of the supplements that they do today they had to fit the landscape of, of their place so to what we realized was once you got an animal that fitted the landscape of the place you reduced all of these overheads and by fault you were then working far more with ecology but also that animal in its behavior on the land started to fit the land so the real way i sort of describe so regenerative farming i would describe a lot of the boys that are getting into regenerative farming now they talk about the soils they talk about up to the roots i kind of say sometimes but they talk about the soils they talk about the pasture quality they talk about their animals performance whether it's cattle or sheep but they don't talk about which you really should if you can regenerate it you should be talking about your insects you should be talking about your bird life you should be talking about your mm. wild mammal life the whole ecology and so with our sheep we viewed them as the herbivore as you would a herbivore of a zebra or a wildebeest in their ecology they were in the ecology of our ecosystem of the farm and they functioned as the herbivore eating away and then I mean, this morning I was just down moving the sheep before we came on and I'm watching swallows flying above our flock. Well, they're flying above our flock because the insects are being knocked up by the sheep and the insects are being knocked up by the sheep because we've given this great big resting period before we get our sheep grazing. And our sheep are grazing there and having this resting period and there's no insecticides or anything put down there because they don't need it. So with that, we have the swallows flying above. And then I've noticed yesterday we had a peregrine sat in our tree wanting to hunt the swallows. So you have this trophic cascade, as we call it in ecological terms, of the herbivore of the sheep absolutely filling that ecological niche within the landscape. And so it's 
as natural as we possibly can do it on a farm to then if you wanted to sell the meat on you would then be having the meat from that ecology and that web of life once you then have an animal or anything really working well within that system you want to then be able to like we said at the beginning i want to i have a reference for that system and i want to then showcase it yeah. in my final product by integrating all of those elements that you're putting into it what's surrounding it and growing it and creating that and um in the final flavor yeah uh, of, of the recipes that we work with and i think it's fascinating as well because this mix of reverence for history and how we used to do things and there is an incredible value to be mined from that mm -hmm. and and i think we really understood in so many ways what because because we were forced to not because we chose to uh mm -hmm. how to work better as you said ecologically back then mm -hmm. and if we introduce those concepts now and it's something that i speak about a lot in terms of the sort of um, microbiological elements of the work that i do of, of fermentation and aging and dry aging um, mm -hmm. and curing because we haven't really improved on that we just actually understand what's happening right so it's not that we've changed the methods it's that we 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 now understand why doing them in that way work one one side we haven't talked about with you sam is the biological side on all this the you know the the microbe side um and so you know if you're having a healthy ecosystem on a farm you have to have healthy soil and you have to have a healthy microbiome in that soil and when you have the healthy microbiome in the soil that's mirrored in the animal's gut because mm. they will have that high population in their gut to then ruminate and take down the minerals that they're absorbing in the plants that they're then turning into flesh and the thing is is they're turning that flesh into high mineralized flesh that then goes off to someone like you adrian and because you've got this high mineralized content that then works with the microbes you're using and create something far better than if you had impoverished meat coming to you so this whole microbiome which once actually if we go the full circle is once someone eats your food because you have a diversity of microbiome in your food that then um, populates their gut that's something we only understand now because we actually have modern principles at play so yes. it's the marriage between the two we're sort of talking specifically about the now in a sense this application of scientific knowledge rather than anecdotal you know inherited knowledge uh, but but we're still talking about historical systems that, that have worked in in harmony with nature i'm sort of looking now to the future is that what we need to be aiming for as, as a kind of you know food and farming community is is a deeper understanding of why these systems work and how we can apply them or or are we just do we just want nature to guide us there's this tendency within science to understand things is to break them apart and so someone says you want to understand the heart well you know the, the modern reductionist science would cut us open and just slap the heart out on the table and go okay let's understand the heart well we now know the heart has neuron neurons in it that attach to the brain and the heart has all of these functions around our body and to understand the heart well do we look at the whole body but then we understand because we have neurons in our heart that our emotions are affecting the heart as well so where do we stop with it and our emotions are affected by the outside world so what i'm sort of saying is we can we can use reductionist science to a certain level to understand these things but actually 
going back to the old which you mentioned sam of going back to the olden ways i think we've lost a lot in the olden ways as well so we've we've sort of thrown this all out for this new understanding techie way of understanding which has given us a certain type of understanding but we've also lost a more soulful understanding as well my grandmother remembers she's passed now but she remembered the first milking machines coming in and i always remembered her telling me about the first milking machines and she was going they were awful things and how did they know when the cow had sore udders they didn't and who's going to sing <laughs> to the cow and calm her down they didn't they had an awful machine with awful noise and it scared them it was an awful thing and there's this softness and this relationship that she had and her generation had and i kick myself i didn't realize at that young age i should have asked them so many more questions because they you know my dad's generation he wasn't but he was of the generation that ici came in the big agrochemicals came in and we lost so much but my grandmother's generation there was a soulful understanding of the animals and a soulful understanding of the countryside which we've lost today so we have this reductionist science way of understanding it but in a way we've lost this soulful more emotional way of understanding if that makes sense as a modern culture we pat ourselves on the back for having been so inventive to come up with this or that and one of the things of course is like we've renamed it but low like low waste mm. and this idea of, of 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 living low waste is so new isn't it so new <laughs> and i just i just die when i hear that because it's new for us to talk about it maybe in a commercial setting mm -hmm. right now but it is the oldest concept in the world and if you want to speak about grandmothers you can tell by my accent the the most british of, of either of the two people <laughs> of all three of this trio my partner is is british and his grandmother who i had the supreme uh, luck to to meet uh, very early on in our relationship one of my strongest memories of her and it was part of this period of my life where I was experiencing the UK for the first time and really getting to know it, was visiting her in her home and going to scrape, having brought her lunch and going to scrape the remainders of what we hadn't eaten into the trash and her taking the plate out of my hands and saying, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. That's not, what, why are you putting that in the bin? it goes in my fridge because we'll have it later because I'll eat it later because yeah. nothing gets thrown away. And the, the fold, you know, finding these drawers full of folded papers, folded aluminum, everything saved. I'm just smiling because I'm thinking of my grandmother and I don't know about yours, Sam, but I mean, my grandmother, we had, if, she, if you didn't eat the pudding on the first day, bang, it was out on the second day and the third day and the fourth day. Well, it's inbuilt in that generation, you know, that whole waste not want not you know it's nice and pithy and it tells the story i think i think we've moved so far away from that but uh you know i guess with you know someone like silo the restaurant silo sort of zero yeah. waste yeah. you know that 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 is bringing i know i know it's sort of laughable that these old you know these old ways have fall, fallen so by the wayside that they're almost being like regenerative regenerative agriculture is in some fields kind of touted as this kind of amazing new idea that's going to save the world and, and, and actually, it's the same thing as zero waste. It's, well, it's the obvious way to do things. And that's actually the way that ancestors have done things. Yeah. But, you know, I think there is an important value in, in talking about those sort of things and 
you know, advocating for them. And I think, you know, um, McMaster, uh, you know, the chef at, at Silo, you know, he really shines a light on that particular thing. And if that attracts a new generation of people that perhaps are interested, I think that is a positive and I think that is the future. I did mention earlier that, um, you know, when I started 10 years ago, there was very few of us. Um, and now it's, it's wonderful because we, we have this conference called the Oxford Real Farming Conference that happens every, well, be interesting, but happens every, did happen every January. And it started with just a handful 10 years ago. And now there's over a thousand. They hold it at the same time as the Oxford Conference, which is your agri-tech, big boy, games, barley baron conference, which the sort of your NFU big boy farmers go to. And um, this was seen as like the rebel conference, the fringe conference on the side. But now this has overtaken it in farmers. So so the regenerative farming conference is far, far bigger. The real farming conference is far bigger than the original one. And what is wonderful is how many young people are there. And, and it's really is burgeoning. So the food culture in this country is definitely changing. And what I'm loving too is we're now getting more and more farmers talking about farming ecologically. And when they talk ecologically, they're not just talking about the soil. You know, they're actually talking about farming within the, the ecology of the land and all the wildlife that inhabits that land. And it's so important because, you know, 70% of the UK is farmland. So if us regenerative farmers can't save the wildlife, then who else can? I, I would have, I, and I would have piggybacked on that and to say, you know, I think it's great in the sense that Rebecca has thrown the gauntlet down and said, oh, it's the farmers. But for me, I think the most poignant and important thing to get across in this conversation between a farmer, a, a maker, if I will, and then, and then you, Sam, who, who in, a, in a way is, also, is the, the final front man in a lot of the work that you do, is how important every stage, every step is. So there we go. If you want to know uh, more about Adrian Isatribi and her company, Crown and Q, I think the best way is just to go to their Instagram, which is at Crown and Q, and that's Q, Q-U-E-U-E, uh, as in queuing, rather than a snooker queue. And uh, follow the link to their website. Um, have a look at the writing that Adrian does. Catch up on some of her awesome Instagram stories she does. She does some great interviews on there and chats to other makers and thinkers and leaders in the industry uh, she's great her produce is beautiful uh, uh, yeah so check her out and for Rebecca to find out more about her I did mention her website last time but if you have a look at her Instagram account as well it's at underscore Rebecca dot Hosking H-O-S-K-I-N-G underscore uh, and there's loads about her there always good value some good photography uh, as you'd expect uh, uh yeah and really interesting and to check out her current project which is at the forever flock and that's all one word at the forever flock so go and check them out support them buy their produce talk about them share just continue the conversation that, that already ran into two episodes so um thanks again for listening to the Selman podcast and i'll see you soon the Selman podcast is produced by me sam wilkin if you want to know more about Seliman, go to Seliman Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website seliman.co.uk. Mm-hmm.